1: where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hi, this is MK Williams.
1: This is Dave Mason. And this is Doc G. And today we're going to earn and invest in a new genre of writing called financial independence fiction. I want to be the hero. I want to be the protagonist. I want to be the guy who rushes in with a sword and recaptures the castle and saves the princess. So it's probably no surprise that I find very little of interest in reading personal finance books. I'm much more a fan of science fiction, of fantasy. I am in love with the hero story. Because what is the hero story? It's the story of the underdog, the weakling, the one who is always pushed and cast aside... I connect with that character. I want to read about that character becoming the hero by them overcoming that which stands in their way. And because of that, I tend to read books that reflect that story. You know what I don't like to read much of? Personal finance books. Now don't get me wrong, I have my favorites. I read The Millionaire Next Door. I'm a big fan of The Simple Path to Wealth and J.L. Collins. Heck, Jim Dolly's book, The White Coat Investor, changed my financial trajectory. But read three or four of these books and you kind of get the gist of it. And there's nothing glamorous about being a financial book protagonist. There's nothing glorious about saving more money. There's nothing wonderful about index investing. Well, I shouldn't say that, it is wonderful, but it certainly isn't exciting. It's the slow and steady way to wealth. I'd much rather be the hero. Personal finance doesn't fulfill this need in my life. Or at least it hasn't up to this point. There is a new genre of book called Financial Independence Fiction. And it casts aside this idea of the normal didactic teaching method for personal finance books. Instead, it's full of plot twists, it's full of storylines, and most important, it's full of protagonists, heroes, people I can connect with. Maybe I can have my cake and eat it too. And while we're on the subject of fiction, many of us are freelancers, small business people, and consultants. And what's not fiction and even harder than getting the big job or account? It's getting paid for it once the work is done. That's why we're giving a big thanks to Joust for supporting Earn and Invest. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Pay Armor. Joust invoice payment guarantee product supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com slash earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N-P-O-D. Okay, I have to admit, I was a little bit skeptical of Dave Mason. He wrote me over Facebook and said, Hey, I got this book. I want to be on your podcast to talk about it. It's called The Cash Machine. I was like, yeah, whatever. Send me the book. I'll take a look, and then I'll consider. A week later, the book comes in the mail, and it's a Saturday, and I have nothing to do. I sit down to read for a few minutes while I'm in between things. Four hours later, I look up, and I'm done was an amazing book, and I am so proud and happy to actually meet Dave in person and have him on the show. Dave Mason, what's up, man? So great to be here, Doc. I think just looking at the title of your book, we would all like a cash machine. So if that's what the book tells us how to do, I think everyone should get it. That's exactly what the book tells us somewhat how to do. It's not that easy, right? You can't just you know get a few tools together and make it happen, right? You know, I'm not
2: certain it's not that easy. I guess there's a difference between easy and complicated. like it's a simple thing to do building a cash machine, but it can be challenging. Like it takes a lot of dedication, it takes a lot of focus, it takes a lot of intensity, like most things that are really worth doing. But the steps aren't that complicated if you just kind
1: of go through them methodically. What's there not to like about m k Williams? First of all, she's an amazing friend. second, a brilliant author. and third, She teaches people how to write and self-publish so they can meet their dreams. I mean, how many people out there dream of being an author? Well, MK is one of those people who helps get them there. MK, happy to have you.
0: Hey, thanks for having me back. It's always a great time to be here to chat about books.
1: I love to talk about books. You were on the last time, I believe, to talk about women and financial independence. Is that right?
0: Correct. Yeah. That that was one one of
1: our earlier episodes.
0: Yeah, it was a fun conversation.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a good time. MK, I feel like we can't even start to begin this conversation without some definitions. What exactly is fi Fiction?
0: When you think about all the different subgenres of fiction, they can be put in these easy to categorize buckets, right? You have your romance, you have your western, you have your science fiction, your fantasy. Five fiction is where there's a story that one of the central themes is financial independence. Now that doesn't mean it's only about financial independence. There's obviously other plot points going on, but the central premise is that it's about financial independence, and whether that's meaning it's tailored to people in the financial independence community or it is potentially a gateway to bring people into that community. Community, the primary theme is spy.
1: I think the first time I heard that term was probably when you were on the Choose FI podcast. Who coined that term? Do you remember? Was it you?
0: That's what I was going with to say, this is the kind of book that it is. It is FI, capital FI fiction. That was one way I was trying to market it. Hey, if you are interested in FI, you will like this book. Then when I market it to the layperson who does not know about financial independence, I don't put that out there blatantly because I want to bring them in slowly into my web of fiction plots and then they'll figure it out from there.
1: Now, Dave, when you first started writing about financial independence, had you seen anyone else in the marketplace writing about such things? No, in fact, it was not until recently that I
2: heard that MK was also writing in this area. I first started it really with no exposure to financial independence at all. And that to me was why I started, because... I'd gotten to a place in my life where I'd made a lot of money, but I didn't have anything substantial to show for it. I'd actually gotten myself deeply into debt because I did a lot of really stupid things financially. It's not like I was really into financial independence and I decided, okay, this is a great topic to write a book on. It was the complete opposite. I realized that so many of my money troubles were because I knew how to make it, but I didn't know how to save it, invest it, protect it from taxes. I didn't know how to grow it. I didn't know what my financial goals should even be. And I realized I needed to dive into this area and really get myself a whole financial education. I'm kind of strange in that when there's an area I want to learn where I want to master, my favorite way is to research and write a novel on the subject. So I knew nothing about it. And if I was trying to just learn enough about money for myself and my family, I would have learned 5%, 10% of what I needed to learn in order to write a book on it. For me, because I had the book driving me, there's so many questions that really didn't even impact my own life that I had to answer because I needed to my readers this whole realm of finances that I had never learned. I really wanted to make my readers financially literate at the end of this book.
1: Did you find that your perspective changed through the process of writing the book? It sounds like when you started writing, you didn't have a fully formed idea of what financial independence was.
2: Absolutely. And my perspective completely changed. I think that had I even understood that financial independence was a goal early on in my career, I would have acted so differently. In fact, when my personal money troubles began was not when I was trying to make enough to live on. I did great well until I made enough to live on. When I started making more money than I needed, I didn't know what to do with the excess. I started doing a lot of stupid things because I had more than I needed and it drove me to really ridiculous decisions because I didn't know what do I do with it? What should my financial goal be once I've already covered my rent and food and all of my expenses? What do I do with all this money? I did stupid things and rather than building up a financial foundation, dug myself into a huge amount of debt. So researching this book just absolutely exposed me to the whole concept of financial independence. And suddenly it was like, ah, that's what you do. You take that excess, you build passive income sources so that you're not dependent on your primary income anymore. That was just a huge, dramatic change in my perspective on money. Suddenly I knew what to do with it and when to measure my success. My success was no longer, am I making enough to live on this year? My success was, am I making enough so that if my business tanked tomorrow, myself and my family would be set for life?
1: MK, I love how Dave uses this word, occult cult world of financial independence. For you, it wasn't a cult at all. In fact, I would gather that you were pretty schooled in financial independence before you decided to write in this genre.
0: My husband and I found financial independence before we got married, before I even published my first book. It was only through having been in this community and wanting to tell that story that I decided to write Enemies of Peace. And one of the key things that writers will say to do as advice is that you should write what you know. Well, what I knew was that I felt like an outsider because I was making the different choice of my money. I was making the more conscientious choice where most people weren't. I felt like an outsider because I had very clear definition for my life goals. And so many people would just look at me like I had five heads, you know, talking about that or that feeling of being the other. And so that is what I wanted to put into this book more so than the nuts and bolts of how do you reach financial independence? There are really great nonfiction books out there that tell you how to do that. I wanted this book to be the story of what does it feel like from the inside and what does it feel like from the outside to really delve into that.
1: Dave, it's an important question. Why not just write a how-to book? Why go with fiction when you're dealing with financial independence? There are tons of how to books. There are tons of
2: nonfiction books out there. But I really believe that people learn best through story. And I believe that a nonfiction book just really fails to capture the emotional challenges that go into this whole process. In fact, this book isn't just a story, it's a love story. And the reason it became a love story, it was not intentionally going to be a love story. In fact, the person who emerged as the main character was only the third main character when it started. But it really naturally started evolving that way. And I think the reason is because so many of the biggest challenges in my own marriage came from not being on the same page with my wife on financial issues. The ironic part about that is, if we'd ever sat down and had an intelligent conversation, if we'd ever read a book together and discussed financial ideas, I think we would have come to the same understanding very quickly. But money was a taboo subject growing up. You know, you didn't go and ask people how much they made. We were told to keep these things very private. That should have shifted when I became an adult. But somehow, when a subject is something you're not supposed to be talking about, or you're not supposed to be bringing out into the air, then there is no natural point when it's going to just shift for you. It was was a taboo subject, and so we got married, and we didn't talk about money. We didn't get on the same page. We had all kinds of financial misunderstandings that really led to us having all these troubles. And that's one of the things I wanted to be bringing out in this book is that the relationship aspect of going through this whole struggle for financial independence and what it means when one person is in a relationship is committed to an ideal of like financial independence and the other person has never heard of it and has a hard time getting her head around it. Amber, the main character, looks at her boyfriend Dylan like a bum. Like why would she be interested in this guy? He looks totally impoverished. He doesn't have a car. He lives in some basement. He spends no money. He won't go out to eat. What is wrong? wrong with this guy? He's so not living a normal lifestyle. And she has a real emotional struggle getting her head around this. She sees he's a good guy, but it takes her a while to understand just what he's all about and why she'd want to go down this path with him. And I want to really bring those things out. A nonfiction book rarely deals with the emotional struggles that this type of life
1: change, this type of process is going to involve. MK, does that relate to, for you, this idea of talking about taboo subjects with fiction gives you a little more freedom and maybe a little more acceptance than just writing your typical how-to book would?
0: I think so. And I think for me, whenever I'm writing any story, you know, you're supposed to have the good guy and the bad guy, right? You're supposed to have the hero and the villain. But the best books and the best stories, the ones that we remember, are the ones where we can empathize with the villain. Like nobody's just the villain to be the villain. There are people where they made choices and based on their worldview, that makes sense. And even in Enemies of Peace, it's very clear that the two main characters that we look on, they're not the good guys <laughs> in this story. I was very careful to plant certain things about those characters that would be very clear, like you are not supposed to like them. You're not supposed to root for them based on our societal norms, but you can still empathize with them because maybe you were in that headspace before, maybe you're in that mindset before. So the best books, I think, delve into that, but they also show there's not a clear answer to these things. Whereas with a how-to book, it does say, follow this process, here's the research, follow this. And there's definitely a place for that. But I think when it comes to a story, you want to be able to show that nuance because that's going to allow people to relate better and they remember the story more because of how it made them feel.
2: I totally agree with that. And that's one of the things that I loved about this five fiction realm as well. But the nonfiction books, they're all advocating a position. And in The Cash Machine, I was really able to have different characters represent different perspectives on money. And I didn't want to make it so that there were some with the intelligent perspective and some with the stupid perspective. I wanted it to be that husband and wife, say, could read this book together. One might really identify with one perspective and one might really identify with the other perspective. But now they've got the vocabulary to talk this out. Just like the characters are debating, they can have that type of debate and they can come to an understanding because now they've got the language and they've got different perspectives. And I try to make them somewhat balanced in that so that you can really identify with those who are really passionate about their career and making a ton of money or those Those who are going so hard to be building something huge for themselves and those who want to go very minimalistic and just say, you know what, I don't want to work that hard. I want to be able to go simple and live a simple life. And okay, now that we've read this book that hasn't advocated a position, let's think about what we
1: want to build for our family. It's really interesting taking your two books together, The Cash Machine and Enemies of Peace. And the reason why is at their heart, I believe both books are the stories of two separate Couples. And MK and Enemies of the Peace, the quote unquote protagonist, is less likable and less relatable than the secondary couple, which maybe is more in the financial independence subculture. And Dave, in your book, you also have two couples, and the protagonists are eventually end up more on the financial independence page. And the secondary couple is similar to MK's protagonist. So, MK, I feel like before we go any further, this podcast, we need a little bit of a synopsis of Enemies of the Peace and talk to us about the two different couples represented.
0: In Enemies of Peace, it starts out with Cynthia and Timothy Lawson, and they are recently married. They're looking to buy their first home, and they move into what is their dream home. You know, the home where well, we can make it work. We can figure it out. We'll find a way to make this happen. And they meet their new next door neighbors, which is uh, Jack and Melinda Rychak. And very quickly, um, you know, they seem nice, but they're getting a vibe. They're getting an off feeling about these neighbors. There's something different about them. There's something off about the way that the house came on the market, and they just start to see those red flags. And as we go through the story of that first summer in their home, we realize that there's a lot of underlying trouble with the relationship that Cynthia and Timothy have. And then we get these interesting glimpses of the Rycheks, their neighbors, and the ongoing concerns that Cynthia has about who they are and who they might be. And for those who have read the book or have even just read the first page, you know that the book starts with an explosion. You know that a house has been destroyed by an explosion. You don't know who was in it, who caused it, what happened, but you know that there is something nefarious. About to occur on this very idyllic American suburban cul de sac. And therefore, we need to figure out what happened and who done it. So, the financial aspects are layered in below the overall mystery, which is who blew up the house? What happened? I feel
1: like the Lawsons are kind of the typical American public who spends without thinking and is always trying to keep up with the Joneses, while as the Reichs maybe are people we would identify more with, those of us on this podcast.
0: Exactly. So to those listening to this podcast, you're likely on the financial independence path. And I will say when I wrote this book, I wrote it so that people in the FI community would read it and they would know who to cheer for right away, right? And they would see one of the big twists coming. There are two big twists at the end. If you're in the FI community, you will see one of them coming. I'm aware of that, but you probably won't see the final one coming. But I wanted to read it so that people in our community could enjoy it, but also so that people who aren't in this community have no concept could read it they're more likely to root for the Cynthia and Timothy because they're more likely to identify with them. They are not likely to see either of the big twists coming. And the idea is that they'll walk away with this with a new like, huh, I get the feeling I wasn't supposed to be rooting for who I was rooting for. I get the feeling I should maybe question how I'm doing things. So I wanted it to be that story that would stick with the person who has no concept of fi and hopefully be that good entry point for them to maybe learn more about it.
1: And Dave, do the same for me with the cash machine. Give us a a short synopsis and talk a little bit about the two different couples portrayed. There's Dylan and Amber. They're one couple, and at least part of the time they're a couple, I should say. And their best friends are also married. And there's a very different look at their financials.
2: Exactly. So I'm actually going to take a step back here, and I'm going to talk about the original version of the book and how it started before I get into that. So the original version was, it was a buddy book between these these two guys, Kyle and Dylan, when they were both college freshmen. They're both on the same general track, college, law school, jobs in big firms, and they wound up taking a trip down to Mexico during winter break of their freshman year of college. And while they were down there, they met this fisherman who started asking them questions, getting a sense of like what their passions were in life, what their goals were. Really neither of them had a clear vision for life more than they wanted to make a good amount of money. They wanted to do well for themselves. And this fisherman tells them, you know what, if that's what you want, You're totally going about it the wrong way and starts talking to them about the concepts of financial independence. Kyle says, Wow, this this is some old weird kook. I don't know. I don't want to listen to this guy. Goes back to college, law school, gets a job at a top firm. Dylan, however, decides, You know what? There's something this guy's saying that's making sense. Like, why am I digging myself into debt for a career that I don't even know that I want yet when I haven't really decided what my life's going to be about? Maybe I should listen. Maybe I should think about what this guy's saying. So he actually spends a couple months. In Mexico, learning from this guy before returning to the States. Ultimately, then, his girlfriend, he kind of lets her know that, you know what, he's not going to be back for a little bit. He's going to be returning. He's decided he had to stay in Mexico for a little while. She, when he gets back, is just incredibly pissed and wants nothing to do with him. Now, the girlfriend was initially the third main character, but soon Amber kind of bumped Kyle out as the second main character. And before long, she wasn't done. She realized that at a certain point, she said to me, no, 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 this book is about me. Forget that Dylan guy. Dylan was this very kind of stoic figure who, when something made long. Logical sense to him, he did it. Amber wasn't willing to do that. Amber completely rejects Dylan when he gets back from Mexico. Feels totally betrayed by him that he left her, stayed down in Mexico, then sent some notes saying he found something amazing down there when he was going to stay. And then when he gets back, he drops out of school. She was prepared to take him back, but he's a dropout. In her mind, he's a dropout loser bum who can't get his life together. Probably was getting high in Mexico and his life just fell apart. I don't want to be with a bum and she won't speak to him. The book starts seven years later when Kyle, after having gone out of state to law school is back. He's just got engaged to Libby. Actually, Kyle and Dylan were were best friends. Amber and Libby were best friends. Dylan and Amber started dating first and they set up Kyle and Libby right before the Mexico trip. And then, you know, Dylan and Amber were through. Kyle and Libby wound up dating, getting engaged. And Kyle and Libby invited Dylan and Amber out to this day at the beach. This is when the book actually starts. And Amber's just so pissed at Dylan. She had such high expectations. She was so in love with this guy. She has so much she wanted from him. She looks at him as a bum. He doesn't have a car. He lives in some basement. He looks dirty. He works a manual labor job. And she's so angry that he just, his life fell apart and he became this loser. And she's just so mad at him. And at a certain point he walks out, he's not getting through to her. He's trying to explain to her. She'd never given him the time of day. And after he leaves, Kyle kind of says, you know, pretty hard on him there. And she's like, well, look at him, look at him. He's being a bum. Maybe it's time that somebody really opened up and let him know, give him some perspective. He's like, oh, really perspective on what? Well, he's not making anything with his life. It's like, well, is that how you see it? And it's like Kyle is big and successful, seems to be taking Dylan's side, which surprises her. And then it turns out it's like, well, if he's such a if you think he's doing so well, why is he living in a basement? And he responds, Well, easy. The mortgage is cheaper if he lives in the house. And this is the least expensive apartment. She's like, wait a second, he owns the building? It's like, oh yeah, and another one. And suddenly starts to realize, wait a second, this bum is actually owns two buildings? He owns like eight apartments? What is going on here with this guy? And she decides to give him another chance and say, what am I missing? How can he be successful and everything's falling apart? But she's struggling because he lives like a total bum. But really as she uncovers it, he's made that decision down in Mexico that he wanted to spend a decade building himself a financial foundation because he didn't yet know what he wanted to do with his life. And why spend money and get into debt before you know what you want to do. Better to build a financial foundation, he thought. And then later, when he's totally financially independent, he can do whatever he wants. So he's been living dirt cheap, doing house hacks, spending next to nothing, working hard, putting away tons of money, building this whole foundation. And after a little while, Amber starts to realize, okay, well, maybe there's something to this. And I know this is a really great guy, but I don't know if I want, I'm want. i ready to go down this road with him again. You know, it was so, such a heartbreaking experience the first time. I don't know if I can handle that. And you know what? Before I get too emotionally involved with you again, I need to understand if I can go down your financial path because I know that's non-negotiable with you. So you've built yourself a cash machine, which is basically the collection of all of these passive income generating assets. That's what she calls it. You're like you, I get it. You've built this cash machine for yourself. I need to see if I can walk this path with you. So before we get too emotionally involved again, I want you to teach me how to build the cash machine of my own. And that's really the big chunk of the book is Dylan, like the two of them starting this relationship together, this couple that was totally in love seven years earlier who fell apart because he decided to go down a financial path that she couldn't tolerate and that she wrote him off as a bum. Seven years later, she starts to understand, well, maybe there's something here, but I can't get my heart in this yet. So before I do, teach me, show me what this is about. And so she's struggling with the emotional side of it, really thinking this is a great guy. And at the same time, really struggling over some of the what she views as sacrifice in order to get herself there. And why can't she be normal? And if her friend's having a destination wedding, is she not supposed to be flying to Aruba or wherever that is? Is she supposed to not go out with her friends? Is she supposed to live in poverty for a while, in order to build this up. And she really struggles with the emotions behind that as she's learning the technicalities of how to build a solid financial foundation for herself.
1: MK, as I'm listening to Dave talk about Amber's struggles, I feel like the Rychecks had similar struggles also. Was it hard to give a clear eyed view of what being responsible with your finances looked like, especially knowing that you were writing to maybe a community that wasn't as familiar with financial independence?
0: Yeah, so I wanted to make sure each of the couples was believable, right? So the Lawson's were very believable. The Rychecks though, knowing that people would read this who had no concept of financial independence, they were going to realize pretty quickly that that these two people were a little Off. They were doing things a little differently. So that actually played to one of the good subplot points, which I'm not going to say because I don't want to give it away. But, you know, having to make sure that they seem believable. And the believability is that neither couple is perfect, you know. And I've heard it said before that every marriage is a mystery, except for the two people that are in it. You know, everybody will look at another couple and be like, I don't get it. I don't know how they say to each other. I don't know how they do that. Um, And so with the checks, I couldn't make them this perfect couple because I knew that the people in the Phi community reading it would expect that, right? Well, these are the the paragon we all have to shoot for. It. And, and that's not the case. You want it to look like a realistic couple where they have their own challenges and struggles. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's related you know, to other aspects of their life, but they they couldn't be 100% perfect, just like the Lawsons couldn't be 100% imperfect. And so the way I view it is it's actually two extremes of the same couple, which is like a weird mind exercise to go through. Have fun rereading it with that in your mind. But just to say like, you know, one isn't all perfect and one isn't all bad. So that was the main concept that I had when I was building the ride checks. They couldn't be at the perfect follow everything by the book Five family.
1: Dave, I feel like you did a little bit of the same thing with Dylan. Dylan clearly is one of the protagonists of the book and his philosophies about financial independence and personal finance are certainly part of that protagonism. On the other hand, he seems to struggle throughout the book too. The path he's taken is not an easy path always. Was that on purpose? Absolutely. Dylan's path has to be
2: extreme because if Dylan was more willing to compromise, Amber would have let herself fall in love with him and it would have been a very easy, happily ever after scenario. So one of the real struggles is that Dylan has taken such an extreme stance that there's not a lot of room for compromise. Amber finds herself really trying to become a Dylan. So for instance, at a certain point, he introduces her to the idea of the house hack and she finds a very nice kind of Victorian triplex that she can be buying and making good money on. And she feels very comfortable with that, but that's not an extreme enough case for Dylan. And he helps her find a total dump that she doesn't want to go near that she refers to as the death trap on Haber that is so incredibly revolting to her. And she's just so intimidated, especially when her parents find out that she's about to buy a house and maybe move in with the guy and they're flipping out and they're about to come spend inspect this house. And she knows it just smells horrible, looks horrible. And she realizes that like, okay, financially it makes a lot of sense, but she's so in her discomfort zone. Had she taken an easier step, taken the house that Was still very attractive and had a would have cash flow, just not at the same quite the same rate. She wouldn't have been scared. She wouldn't have felt the need to bolt and run. She wouldn't have had those challenges. Really, to be bringing out these lessons, to be bringing out the tension in the book. I needed to make Dylan such an extremist that Amber just. Was cringing inside with the choices she was having to make. But getting this dented car that she was absolutely ugly and she couldn't stand because it was a really good value because it was pre dented, as Dylan called it. She got a great deal on a car that had a good engine, but that she felt embarrassed to be driving. You know, she got an incredible deal on a wholesale deal on a house that nobody else would buy because it smelled so incredibly wretched and needed so much cleaning and upgrading. And it made a financial sense, but she just couldn't go from living kind of the good life and spending, you know, 100, 110% of her income on her living costs to suddenly going to being this total extremist. So really the extreme nature of Dylan allowed me to be upping the ante emotionally and really pushing Amber to her limits, which I think makes for much better stories than having two people willing to compromise and then suddenly what's there to talk about.
1: MK, is there a risk if we take the typical American love story with poor spending habits and irresponsibility and make them believable and likable, and then we take those who are being more financially responsible and show that there are some flaws there too, are we perhaps not selling this idea of financial independence?
0: So, and I think that we're, that's where it goes back to why do we write. Financial independence fiction? You know, are you writing it to be that entry point, that pathway, that um, gateway to learning more about the movement? Or are we writing it because this is a snapshot in time of our culture, of where we are? You know, right now in American culture, you know, money and adulting and debt is very prevalent. So to be able to write financial independence fiction and talk about that, that also speaks to the time that we're living in. So my hope is that somebody reads it and that they will find financial independence, but I, it's not the only hope that I have. I'm not writing in there, you know, and then you follow this step and go to this website just because that wasn't my style. That wasn't what the kind of book that I wanted to write with it. And the hope is that for those of us who are in the financial independence community and you've handed over all the books that we know, right? You've handed over Simple Paths of Wealth. You've handed over your money, your life to that friend who needs the help and they just can't get it together. And the fact that it says that it talks about money. They don't want to touch it, but they're like, "Oh, I read this book. It's really good. It's got a good plot twist. Read it." You know, is that that subtle message that helps them? I think when we talk about writing the characters, you know, to show who's good and who's bad, I think it's trying to show that we can't judge ourselves too harshly when we're in that spendy mindset or for the mistakes we've made in the past, because we don't want that you know lens put on us. But we also need to realize that just because we're now on this financial independence path, we're not perfect. We're not done yet. This is maybe the first of many steps that we need to take to get to that self-actualization. So it's meant to be that thought-provoking story and have that in there with some explosions and twists.
1: Dave, who are you writing The Cash Machine for? Did you envision you were writing for it for people who already were familiar with financial independence and were working on their finances? Or did you feel like, I need to get this out there for the average Joe who knows nothing about it? So I like to
2: think of one person. The something we call an ideal customer avatar in business when you're thinking about targeting for one person and writing for one person only. And so the person I was envisioning was a woman of 30, just turned 30 and is just now starting a family and for the first time is starting to think about long-term financial implications. And what is she going to be doing with that? What are their, you know, got her and her husband, are they both going to be working? Are they both not going to be working? What do they want to be doing long-term? What are they going to need to be providing for their family? And to me, I'd say my book is more of a gateway book. There's a lot of advanced stuff that somebody who's already into financial independence can really also grow with. But at the same time, I wrote it for somebody who's never been exposed to these ideas before, who wants to really get a financial education, who's really not financially literate. it's absolutely amazing to me. All the years we spend in school, we don't teach financial literacy middle school, high school, college, grad school, nowhere do we actually get a really solid basis in understanding money and how it works. And so I want this book to be that gateway. I want it to be able to raise questions. Like I literally teach hundreds of different financial lessons in the cash machine. And I want somebody who has really never studied finances before, never thought seriously about money, to be able to read this book And I wouldn't say have a full financial education. That's more than a novel can do. I don't want to be too teaching. More what I'm aiming for is this person will then know where to dig. They've been exposed to so many different areas. And of course, with blogs and podcasts and everything that's out there these days, when you want to get more information about an area, it's so easy. But if you don't know the questions to ask, if you don't know the areas to be looking into, then you might never go down that path. So I look at it really as kind of a trail map. And by the time you're finished reading this book, I want you to understand all of these different important areas of money, have a general sense of what they are. Some things, by the time you're done with the book, like with credit cards, you can finish a chapter that's dealing with credit cards and immediately implement those ideas. Other things, like some of the real estate ideas, okay, I've given you just a very surface level exposure to 20 different real estate concepts. And if one of those paths is speaking to you, okay, you're now going to go and do more research on that afterwards. But I want to make sure that somebody who has never had a financial exposure, never had a financial education, never even knew the questions to ask, never knew what their financial goals should be, just like I didn't know what my financial goal should be, can finish this book and have really just been introduced to hundreds of ideas and get them started in all kinds of different thought processes that can lead them down a path. I'll end this with just sharing something that Luther, that crazy Mexican fisherman says to Dylan, when, you know, if you look at the average American, they might work 90,000 hours during the course of their career. That's a lot of hours. Luther promises Dylan, it's like, if you spend 1,000 hours learning about money, I can save you 80,000 hours earning it. That's really what I'm looking to do. Somebody who just has never ever thought about money before. From there, all the way to people who are advanced and have already given a lot of thought. But I want somebody, when they're done with this book, to have an exposure to a realm of financial questions and areas and pathways that have never occurred to them before.
1: I'd like to take a pause for a moment and recap. In the first half of the show, Dave and MK discussed the genre of financial independence fiction. After the break, we delve into why they think it's so important. But before we do, I wanted to say thanks to Joust for supporting Earn and Invest. Have you ever thought about starting your own business? Perhaps you wanted to begin a side hustle or passion project, but weren't sure where to begin. Ensuring a steady income will always be one of the first things you think of and could be the reason why you don't eventually take the leap. Joust is the nation's only all-inclusive banking platform for the self-employed. Business banking can feel complicated, but Joust makes it easy. PayArmor, Joust invoice payment guarantee product, supports the 71% of the gig economy workforce that experiences non-payment. You can sign up for Joust for free at try.joust.com earnpod and enter the promo code WUN and get $100 in credits. That's try.joust.com slash E-A-R-N-P-O-D. that's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Dave, was there any concern that you were putting too much of an emphasis on real estate? I think it's the common thread in the book. And certainly, at least from a reader's standpoint, I felt that it got maybe a little more play than other financial aspects.
2: You know, it's absolutely a great question. I think one of the reasons why real estate gets so much play in this book is because real estate is just so incredibly powerful in terms of getting financial independence. And one of the biggest reasons why real estate is so powerful is because we all need to live somewhere. So when you're actually thinking about hitting financial independence, a lot of times people think about financial independence as how much money do I need to cover the cost of my current lifestyle? But the flip side is also very powerful. Well, if I am able to reduce the cost of my current lifestyle, the amount of money I need also goes down tremendously. Once you start adding the real estate component into there, it's both on the passive income generating side and on the expense reduction side. And even further, it's on the tax reduction side. And I've actually been absolutely blown away by the tax implications of real estate and depreciation. It's, I'd say it was one of my biggest discoveries in the entire book was how absolutely gigantic real estate can be for, for tax savings, especially when your source of income as it is in my case, is passive. My main income comes from e-commerce websites that I spend a half hour a day or so working on. It's a passive income source. And so if I buy real estate, even though that real estate might be going up in value, according to the taxation laws, I'm allowed to declare it as depreciating, as going down in value. And I'm able to use that to wipe out my income from my primary business, which just absolutely blows my mind that something that is going up in value can actually be used to wipe out passive income in the U.S. To me, all those reasons that real estate reduces your cost of living, it is a very reliable way of creating passive income if you're buying a cash-flowing property, and it can absolutely have gigantic tax implications for you. I think those are three reasons why real estate got a lot of traction in this book, and I think it deserves it.
1: MK, I want to transition this conversation in a little bit of a different direction. I've teased you in the past that the initials of the checks, their first names, are the same initials as you and your husband. And I was wondering how much you see yourself and your relationship with your spouse reflected in those characters and enemies of the piece.
0: What's funny is when you first posted that, I had never initially intended that at all. So the characters' names were different for the entire drafting process, and I changed them for the final publication to Jack and Melinda. So that was a total coincidence. I hadn't even put that together myself. But as far as how much of reality, like from my life and my relationship is in there, very little. I think there is this idea that all authors are just writing their own stories into their books. And that's definitely not the case for me, mainly because I've never survived an alien invasion or been in a time machine either. So it's very different. I will say there is a little, there's like little winks to like real people in there. And there is a little bit of one thing that Jason did when he was younger is he decided that he wanted to start his own side hustle. And that was to sell all the family board games. He did make quite a bit of money doing that until one day his mom was like, where's the games? That was subtly put in there as one like anecdote of Jack Rychek that I thought would just be funny because when my mother-in-law read it, she would burst out laughing and she did. But the rest of it is all really synthesized, created. I don't see much reality in there. And in some ways, it's almost as if Jack and Melinda are a composite of some of the bigger names and bigger philosophies in the Phi space. What's interesting is after the book came out, I had several people ask me like, is Melinda this person? Is Melinda this person. And it was two totally different people in the space. And I was like, I've never met either of them. So absolutely not. She's entirely made up. It's interesting to see how people will read it and who they think is who. And really, they're just totally made up people.
1: Dave, I'd ask you the same question. Is there any similarity between Dylan and Amber and you and your relationship with your wife?
2: So I kind of have the opposite perspective on this as MK. I feel like when I write a book, every single character is me. And it's always interesting, especially because I actually co-write books with my wife both this book and the last book we did, which is called The Size of Your Dreams, we wrote together. So many of the characteristics of the characters are really us in certain ways, or really, I would say, different aspects of us. Yes, like I said, you know, this became a romance, not because that was originally what I wanted to write, and I'd never thought about writing a romance. I'd never read a romance in my life, and it very much surprised me that that's what I wound up creating, but it just became the natural way the book went, and I kind of let my books lead me more than I try to lead them, and it became clear that it had to be a romance because the reason why I had so much burning desire to learn about money was because of the difficulties we went through in our relationship as a result of not being on the same page about money. It was absolutely bringing out the tension that a couple feels because my wife and I felt so much tension and so much shame around dumb financial choices and bad financial communication so that it just made sense for us to be bringing that out. Now, there's so many things about Dylan and Amber that are drastically different than my wife and myself, but really the fact that it was this relationship and the fact that emotional tension was so present in the book and in the relationship because there's the love interest and the money interest and how those two things come together and often colliding is absolutely created because of the tension that we had in our own relationship around money.
1: Yeah, and I'd like to give you guys both that credit. In both of your books, the fictional characters really bring out that emotional tension about money and relationships. And for sure, what I think one of the best things of this genre is that it does take these taboo ideas and gets us thinking about them, discussing them, and starting to think that maybe there are more healthy ways for us to deal with money. MK, I'm going to ask you to put on your hat as the Choose FI book publishing lead, where do you think this genre is going? Are we going to see more financial independence fiction?
0: I certainly hope so. I think it's fun. And I think as we have more people in the space who have that storytelling ability that makes space for great creative nonfiction and really great fiction, I would love to see us do some chapter book series for middle school kids, some children's books. I actually had one author reach out on that and we are just too busy right now. So I told him, I was like, if you get a deal, take it. If not in a few months, when I follow up with you, we'll talk, but um, certainly don't want to hinder their progress in the meantime. But it's exciting to see what's coming. And I absolutely hope that there's more or fi fiction because it has to ring true for different people. And so if you truly just do not enjoy reading nonfiction, if you don't even enjoy reading suspense, if you are a sci-fi person through and through, well, getting you some sci-fi fi fiction would be great, right? You have to be able to meet people where they are. And for some people that is developing the curriculum that's being done through Choose Fi and the foundation and the, the books associated with it. For some people, it's a podcast. And for some people, it's a book that is exactly where they already are to help them along that path. I hope that there's a lot more coming.
1: Dave, you mentioned that you write books when there's an area of interest that you want to dive into. How do you see yourself? Are you going to write the next five fiction book or is it to the point where you feel like you know and you understand it and you're going to move on to different genres?
2: Oh, no, this was my five fiction book, and I'm excited to be jumping into the the next areas. In fact, right now we're working on three different books, two that I'm doing with my wife and the third in a biblical fiction series that I started about 12 years ago. It's called The Age of Prophecy that I've been working on. And so for me, it's all about delving into different areas. So much of the writing process for me is selfish, truthfully. I write on areas where I really feel like I need to grow in and I needed to grow in the financial area. I needed to grow in this area of financial independence. I needed a real education. And that's why I wrote this Book. Now I'm going to start moving into other areas that I really need to know about better as well. For me, it's just really part of a lifelong path of learning and growing. And I love the vehicle of writing novels as something that makes me just get so much more data about an area than I would if I was just doing it for my own personal edification. And it's a great, great way to get an education. It's a really fun way to do it. And I need to take all these lessons and somehow figure out, well, what is a story that can support that? We can really bring those lessons out. And that to me is an incredibly fun process, but it is absolutely matched with my own growth process. I think if I do another money book, the next one will be more about making money. So I've got 20 years of experience in business and you know this was a book specifically not about making money. It's about what to do with money once you've made it. It's not about how to earn more money in in your business. So I think that might be something I'll be delving into more in the future on the financial side, but our other books are not really going to be you know returning to this whole financial independence realm. I don't believe
1: if you wrote that next book about building businesses, would it be fiction? And do Amber and Dylan have a next chapter?
2: It would absolutely be fiction and it would not be involving Amber and Dylan. Amber and Dylan are a bit too much of a lived happily ever after story, in that, you know, Dylan was not a guy with tremendous ambition. He starts to find his passions later in the book, but he's a guy who really wanted to make sure that he built himself a solid financial foundation when he was young, when he had few expenses, when he didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. By the end of the book, he's financially independent. I, I don't think he's going to be driven to then figure out how to make more and more and more and more. He'd be a a pretty horrible protagonist for a book on how to be making you know a business stronger. They are absolutely done, but I don't anticipate ever writing nonfiction. I love writing fiction. I think it is the best way to get ideas across. Nonfiction, you can kind of tell somebody what an idea is, but I think if you really want to have somebody experience it, there's nothing like fiction for that. So I expect that every book I ever write is going to be in the fiction realm. I think that Amber and Dylan, we will let them go on with their lives in private and we will delve into these next characters with some other books. I'd be more likely, truthfully, if I was to bring any characters back, to be bringing characters back from my last book, The Size of Your Dreams. That one was Think and Grow Rich Meets Dead Poets Society. And it's a Book that teaches all kinds of different success tools, a lot of them taken from Think and Grow Rich and other kind of personal growth classics, and is taught in a high school classroom with this teacher who's been very successful himself. He kind of sold out from his big company, decided he wanted to go back and give back and teach. And a number of students who he said, I don't want to just teach them math. I want to teach them how to take ownership over their lives and give them a whole set of skills. So because the main character there was, you know, a high school senior who was suddenly learning a certain set of skills, it would be possible to take him when, you know, five years out when he's ready to go into business and teach a business book through him. But Amber and Dylan, I think they're done at this point.
1: MK, I'd ask you a similar question. Is there a sequel with the ride checks following what they do with their life?
0: I don't think so. I mean, I never say never because when I finished my very first book, I said for years I wouldn't do a sequel and that's going to be the next book that I put out. So never say never. But right now I think their story's done. I think it served its purpose. If anything, I would probably follow back up with one of the side characters and maybe do like a side story. But I think that universe is good for now. Better left alone for the time being.
1: And MK, what advice would you give to young writers out there that were interested in possibly pursuing financial independence fiction? Is it a genre that you would suggest people get into? Is there any tricks of the trade?
0: The first thing is you have to write. You have to make the time to write. And the second thing is it's really important to read what's out there already, not just in the genre you want to go into, but read other authors you admire to see how they do things. It's important that if it is fiction and not nonfiction that you are showing and not telling. And that can be a really fine line when you are really excited about certain concepts that you want to bring across and make sure people know, but it needs to be subtle. It needs to be nuanced. And that takes time and that takes a lot of revision and writing. So pack your patience. You're not going to get there overnight. Get into the habit of writing every day and start to read. Read other writers in your genre that you want to go into, read other writers that you just admire and hear good things about. It takes a lot of reading and then a lot of writing, and then you're most of the way there.
1: Dave, I'd ask you the same question. Advice you'd give to new writers specific to financial independence fiction or otherwise?
2: So I'd really echo what MK was saying there. There's there's a real discipline that comes to writing. And I have not found that it is the most creative people or the people who are the, even the best writers who are the ones who who succeed. I think it's those who really want to sit down and have the discipline to sit there and do it. And I think a lot about Stephen King, who. If you read his book on writing, talks about how he had like this nail that he'd hang his rejection letters on by his bed. And at a certain point, he had to replace the nail with a spike because the nail couldn't hold up all the rejection letters. And he just had rejection after rejection after rejection. And I've learned a lot from him. I've tried to do what he does, which was to sit down and basically not get up until he's written 2000 words every single day, which is why he's able to write so much. But for me, it was quite a few years before I was able to write my first book took me six years to write my first book and I just kept reworking it and reworking it and reworking it. And really, it's only a decade plus later that I actually started to look at myself as a writer and really feeling like, wow, I've got some skills now and I can pick up a new project and I can move it along fairly quickly because I've learned all of these things it is really not an overnight success. And I'd say if somebody wants to be writing fiction, that it's something that they should really have a daily practice to and not expect instant success. Expect it to be the type of thing that they're going to be having to constantly be putting more work into. If you love the writing, I think you can do great as a writer. And if you really don't enjoy the process of writing, but want to be a successful best-selling author, you're probably best off finding another area.
1: I was about to say, if you can get used to rejection, merciless work, and feeling like half of what you do is trash, then writing is for you, right? There you go. These days, I will say it's very easy to self publish. So,
2: you know, you can, you don't really need to go through any gatekeepers to get your books out. But the flip side of that is it used to actually mean something when you published a book because there are only a handful of publishers and they selected you as one of the handful of books they were going to put out that year. Being a published author, it meant something. and had a certain amount of prestige to it. I'm actually surprised at how much prestige it still has, given how I can publish my laundry list today and put it out tomorrow. It would be out there and I could call myself a published author. It's really, really, really easy to do. But the flip side is that it means that there's so much literature hitting the shelves and it's possible to publish a book and get zero readers for it, zero people seeing it. So it is a whole different art to getting eyes on it now because there's so much competition. So it's easy to be a writer. It's easy to publish yourself. It's easy to put something out there, but it's hard to crack that kind of upper echelon of the writers who actually have loyal readers and loyal following and people are eager to be picking up what they're doing.
1: The democratization of publication, not just for books, but podcasts and blogs, et cetera, means that there are lots and lots of voices out there, but only a small percentage are being read by a good number of people. We definitely feel that in podcasting as well as blogging. So I think it's common to all of these different fields. MK, it has been a pleasure talking to you today about financial independence fiction. Tell us what's up next in your life and where can we find you?
0: Oh man, what everything's up next for me. In addition to now being a regular feature on the Choose Five podcast and helping them with their books and some of their content, I continue to help other people as they look to self publish in addition to publishing my own work. So I'll be getting my next book out shortly, my next fiction book out shortly. But right now my focus is on launching my nonfiction books. So I'm actually going to have the first two books in a series on how to self publish and how to market your book coming out. So the very creative titles are self publishing for the first time author and book marketing. for the first time author. Again, super creative, but it tells you exactly what you're getting. So I've had so many people come to me over the years and ask questions about publishing and writing. And I've been trying to get that information out there in as many ways as I can. A, to help people, but B, to protect my own writing time. So I'm hoping that in addition to the videos that I put out on YouTube on AuthorTube, these books will continue to help people as they are looking to write their first book, publish it, and figure out what they need to do next. There's a lot of advice out there about self-publishing and I find that a lot of the gurus that speak to it speak to their individual experience and the book that they wrote. So if you are looking to write a five fiction book and you are listening to somebody who wrote a nonfiction bestseller on what to do, you may not be getting the advice that's right for you. So I'm trying to get that information out there so you can find more about those books and my other books at 1MKWilliams.com or AuthorYourAmbition.com. And I'm everywhere on social media at the number one MK Williams. So one, the integer MK Williams.
1: And Dave, what's coming up next in your life and where can we find you?
2: So for me, I hope to never stop learning. It's just an absolutely lifelong passion. I like going from one area to another area. And like I said, I'm currently in the early stages of writing three different books, two with my wife on different personal growth areas and the third book in the Age of Prophecy series. And they're all teaching different life skills through a story. And that's absolutely my passion. It's what I keep hoping to do for a long time to come. I'd say the biggest thing that's coming up next for me as we were talking before the show, looking at my fears and facing them and trying to grow through them. So as I pointed out a year ago, I realized that, you know what? I'm just deathly afraid of the camera and to be getting my ideas out to the world, I might need to start being on camera. And so I decided over the past year that I was gonna do 250 videos and i just eclipsed that. I'm just coming to the end of my year. I declared on my birthday, I'm about to hit my next birthday. And I decided just a couple of days ago that from now to my next birthday, my goal will be to do 50 podcasts. Self-promotion has been something that I've, always shied away from. I put so much energy into my books. I still believe in my books and yet I'll put them out to the world. I'll put them up on Amazon and then start writing the next one and just kind of ignore it. And I'm like, okay, I really believe these books can help people change their lives for the better. So if I believe that, I have an obligation to get it in their hands. All right, promoting myself, it's not something I'm so comfortable with, but you know what? It's time to get over that. I'm going to be trying to do podcast after podcast, putting myself out there, trying to get more and more comfortable going out there and finding my audience wherever they happen to be. In fact, you can get a lot of my books for free. The Size of Your Dreams is for free on Amazon. The Lamp of Darkness, the first book of my Age of Prophecy series is for free on Amazon. You can also look at the website that I've just started making around the cash machine. It's called buildmycashmachine.com.
1: All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank David Mason, author of The Cash Machine, and M.K. Williams, author of Enemies of Peace. I've read both books and enjoyed them greatly and hope you will too. That's a wrap. Yo. Well, I'd love to put out a new episode of the Earn and Invest podcast every day. That's obviously not going to happen. However, if you want to hang out with like-minded people, feel free to come by the Facebook group. That's Earn and Invest Facebook Group. You can find us by going to diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com backslash Facebook. Or you can go directly to the Facebook site, facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. Again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. In the group, you will hang out and mingle with people who listen to the Earn and Invest podcast. And there are a lot of great topics either that I post or articles that other people post. Every day, there's something new there. Let me give you an example. The other day, I put up an article from bloomberg.com. Trump to order U.S. meat plants to stay open amid pandemic. This is an article that talks about reopening the meat plants, given the fact that there should be a beef shortage coming up. And several people had interesting observations. Frank Vasquez replied, having worked in a slaughterhouse, aka meat plant, I would not want to be anywhere near the kind of environment in these times. Who knew that Frank actually worked in a slaughterhouse? Uh, I know he's a lawyer now, so that's quite surprising. Allison and Tom wrote, I mean, if he can provide them with necessary PPE to work safely, then sure. I haven't seen any evidence of his administration being able to do so for frontline medical workers, so I'm inclined to think that the meat plant workers are walking into a slaughterhouse of a different kind. Jeez, <laughs> let's hope not. Rick McGinley said, Food supply chain is no joke and shouldn't be political fodder. And finally, William McVeigh says, I am a meat eater, but meat production is not critical national resource that the federal government needs to be injecting itself into. In my opinion, wheat, corn, lentil production, perhaps, but meat, it's clearly not necessary. So as you can see, we talk about just about everything on the Facebook group. We'd love to have you there. Come and join us, tell your friends, and we'll see you there. Now back to the show. We are back with Erica Young from Tailor Made Budget. She's a financial coach, an author, and a blogger. She has been on the What's Up Next podcast, formerly the What's Up Next podcast, now the Earn and Invest podcast, on an episode about financial independence and being African American. It was a pleasure talking to you then, and I'm happy to have you back.
3: Awesome. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to connect with you again today.
1: I am excited too. We are going to talk about how to emerge from this quarantine with our finances intact. It just blows my mind, Erica, how different our life circumstances are now than when we did that first podcast or even when you and I saw each other at FinCon.
3: Right. Yeah. So much has changed. And honestly, it changed overnight. And that's why I think it's important for us to do a little reflection. I'm, I'm actually calling this season the great reflection. Um, what can we think about and adjust and change in this season financially so that we, you know, are able to come out on top and just honestly not go backwards because there's a lot of fear and concern and some of it for valid reasons, for sure. But for those who haven't seen a big financial downtick in their, their money matters, we just want to make certain that people are able to move forward in a good way.
1: I like that reframing. We're calling this the great pause, but it's a moment for us to sit back and really look at what we've been doing with our lives and our finances. That can be both good and bad. I imagine that people are coming to you. You're a financial coach. You have all your coaching clients. I imagine they're coming to you with a lot of questions right about now.
3: They are. I think some of the biggest questions, of course, are what do I do with my stimulus check? And to be honest with you, it depends on where you are. For those, obviously, who have lost income, that stimulus check is for food and for the basic necessities, making sure that you have those taken care of and you can continue forward without stress. For those whose income has been partially affected, but maybe not so significantly that it's devastating, I say you might want to stock it away, you know, because you just never know what tomorrow brings. And for that last category of people who nothing changed financially, you know, this might be an opportunity to reevaluate. Is there enough money and savings for emergencies? Because this, in fact, is an emergency. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Are you doing enough for your retirement? This might be a good time to increase your percentage into your retirement. So there are some options for folks. And I'm telling everybody, just reevaluate where you are and, and your goals and see, you know, how can you avoid new debt during this season? And how can you take advantage of, honestly, the market being low? and does this apply to your situation today?
1: One of the things that's hard is that we're all stocked away in our houses and we're not in daily contact with people. So it's hard for those of us, especially if we had jobs that could go online, it's hard for a lot of us to know how much this is affecting other people. Can you tell us some percentages here? What percentage of your clients do you think have lost their job? Is that a big problem for, for your clients?
3: from my clients, it's probably around 20% that have had some type of effect on their finances. And so one spouse, you know, may have lost a bit of income. I actually talked with someone, I thought this was interesting. Her income was reduced by 25%, not by a full amount. They were just trying to be conservative and keep people. But I do have a couple of other clients who were independent contractors, and um, they are no longer able to do the personal care that they were doing in terms of facials and things like that. And so yeah, yes they have been affected the good news though is that those that i've been working with were in a decent setup they had a little bit money and savings they knew how to work a budget you know i think the biggest thing for a lot of people is understanding what needs to adjust in this season and that personal care, dining out, gas is lower, childcare may have been halted or eliminated right now. There's a lot of fluff in our budget that has gone away and it's been taken from us in this season. And so you really have to focus on the basic necessities, shelter, utilities, transportation and food. And if you're able to take care of those, focus on that as your priority for sure.
1: And I know a lot of people are trying to balance supporting local businesses versus savings. So Mm -hmm. normally people don't want to eat out all the time. On the other hand, they also want to order pickup or delivery so that they can support that restaurant that they're afraid is going to close down.
3: Yeah, I think. That has to be a balance too. I mean, I was in that camp of people who was like, you know, how can I support the businesses? But you also have to have a healthy boundary around that, because honestly, your family comes first. And so the whole point is sure, solicit these businesses if you can afford to do so. But if you can't take care of your household first, it is always less expensive to eat at home. And um, there are people who are out there helping the economy by getting some takeout on a regular basis. So don't feel more obligation to them than you do your own household.
1: We talk a lot about surviving this downturn, as well as this pandemic and shelter in place order. But are there people out there you think are thriving? Is this the time to start looking into and researching that new business?
3: Yes, there are people absolutely thriving. First of all, I have seen the craziest businesses in the last couple of weeks. I see people renting llamas for their Zoom calls to put a smile on people's faces. I know an insurance agent that I network with who is a magician and he is selling his services way more now because people are looking for ways to connect. And why not get all of your family on to a Zoom call and watch a magic show? You know, we need connection but I'm also seeing people pivot in their businesses. There's, you know, a woman who typically does photos of newborn babies at the hospital. And of course, they're not letting her in right now. But what is on the rise is front door photography and just people standing at their front door, getting a photo of their family, and she can make money doing that now and a service line item that she didn't have before. And when we do return to a new normal, she'll have more ways that she can make money. And so, I mean, I think you do have to, dig deep and look inside and figure out how you can really be an asset in this moment. I myself am looking at webinars. I go in and do lunch and learns for businesses. And now I'm looking at lunch webinars where people bring their bag lunch into their office or wherever they are at home, and they're able to log in to a webinar. And so I think it's important for you to think about how you can really service people in this moment and make money at the same time.
1: Do you think people in general are looking at this as a temporary change or do we think the way business is being practiced in the United States may change for good based on what's happening right now? Mm
3: -hmm. That's a really good point. I think a lot of businesses (laughs) have to think about this as more than just this season. A lot of businesses are trying to figure out, do they want their workforce to be able to be virtual since this was forth upon us? And a lot of employees are looking for that type of flexibility that they did not have before. And it is a very valid thing to consider during this season. So business as usual will be a new business as usual, I think. And I, I think it would behoove everybody to look at it that way in a good way though. I mean, I think you know, being able to have some flexibility is a positive. The businesses have to be open to it.
1: I'm one of those people who work at a job where I was having weekly meetings. And part of my vision always was I hope these can one day go online so that yeah. I could travel more extensively, etc. Because the one main thing keeping me in place was these meetings, of course, besides having young kids. And I have to say part of it has been refreshing this idea Mm -hmm. that I can do some of these meetings and not be in person that cut down on my commute by up to two hours on some days. That's amazing there are some positive effects. And if you look out there, there are this small segment of people who are thriving in quarantine, right? Those people who have not been affected by ill health or had their family members being affected by ill health that thrive while working at home and have built up businesses to deal with what's happening today. It's pretty spectacular.
3: It is. And I think we also need to be open to those types of things. We need to be open to the fact that if you don't have those expenses now, save that money or do something to invest in your business with that those funds, the market's down. It's a great place to invest right now. You're getting every single thing on sale. And there are people who are able to take advantage because they still have their job. They can refinance homes because interest rates are super low. There's a lot that people can take advantage of if they're in that position right now. And yes, absolutely. Starting new businesses, side hustles to make more money is where it's at. My niece, who's four years old, is being schooled over Zoom and loves it. Like she has three classes and she's four. And my you know sister's paying for that. And that's not something that was even thought of six months ago.
1: I want to go back to something you just said a moment ago about putting money in the market. What are you telling your clients about the market? It is a rocky time. We know that timing the market is always difficult, something we don't suggest. But people are reticent to put their money in when they think that, that the market is about to drop precipitously.
3: Yeah. I'm telling people to do what I've done. I, you know, participate in a SEP IRA and I dollar cost average during this time, which means that I I didn't put a lump sum in over the last couple of months. Since January till now, I've just been making sure that I have routine payments into my SEP IRA because you just never know how low it's gonna go. Right. And so I'm actually telling people whose income has not have been affected to revisit their four oh one K or their Roth IRAs and see if they can put more money into it if they haven't maxed it out because now now's a great time to, to do that. And I believe that in the next couple of years, maybe not 2020 quite yet, a few years, you'll look back and be thankful that you increased the percentage into those accounts.
1: Tell me about your clientele right now. Are you having new people come because of the economic turmoil?
3: I'm actually having people come who have been affected and who haven't been affected. I think people are waking up And they're like, oh my gosh, wow. Um, I may not have been affected, but I really need help because if I was, I'd be in a world of hurt. So they're waking up. But I also have people, you know, a couple of clients that have come over the last week, I would say, who are in really dire situations. And so I'm just working with them on some mini money makeovers so that they can kind of get past this, this difficult season. So I think people need help regardless. They're waking up, I guess is the way I would put it.
1: It must be very hard to deal with those people who come to you in dire situations right now because the options available just aren't what they would have been six months ago.
3: Well, it is, but here's the thing. I really believe that if people don't have a coach or a guide or somebody that they trust, a mentor even, In the area of finances, they may make decisions that they regret later. And so I'm glad to be in the position where I can help people make good, solid decisions that they'll be thankful for. I want people to sleep at night. And to be honest with you, when they have a good game plan, that makes me feel better about, you know, obviously the work that I do and be able to add value where they need it.
1: And how do you see this going? I mean, do you feel like we're headed in for a long term economic (laughs) downturn? And if so, do you think the shelter-in-place is going to last?
3: Yeah, that's a toughie. Um, I think the shelter-in-place will be here for a minute. I think this is definitely an every a week-by-week, week, even daily type of deal. I'm telling all of my clients to be prepared that we're in this until the end of May for sure. But I'm also believing that this could be a ripple effect on other industries. So those industries that may not have been affected today, it could ripple down over time. And so the concern is let's not get too excited. And that's why I'm a little cautious about much being in the positive for our economy in the year of 2020 in total. But the optimism comes in that we do have a strong economy and we have recovered in the past. I was around and in business in 2008 and nine when the you know real estate market crashed and we recovered just fine. And um, I was just getting started in work when we had the dot-com crash. And I think that we've had lots of times in our economy that were tough. You know, I think our economy is resilient, we just have to be patient.
1: And a lot of people don't realize the care act may be the first part of stimulation, which means there may be mm-hmm. more money coming at some point. So, yeah. People have to be prepared about what to do with that and how to budget and prepare
3: yeah absolutely. I do think you're right. like this is the beginning. I think Congress was hopeful that it would be the one and only and and now I think we're seeing that this is way more of a long term thing. The one thing that as a parent of kids that I want to make sure get back to high school and college is vaccinations is what's going to hold so much up. And so I really feel like we have to be prepared for paying attention to when the vaccinations are going to come around because my daughter goes to a school that's 3,500 kids and my oldest goes to college with 40,000 students. And I don't see how they're going to be able to, you know, make certain that there are no cases on campus and no flare ups when they go back. And so vaccinations are important to this whole. Puzzle. So let's just be patient and get your financial house in order the best way you can in this moment because you've got to be in it for the long haul for sure.
1: And it sounds like you're doing a lot of thinking about not just finances, but also supportive communities. You've been doing some Zoom calls and webinars and trying to get people together to let them know that they're not alone.
3: Yeah, they're not alone. I mean, 15% of our pop, our working population has been affected with unemployment. That doesn't even include all the people who just have had some type of loss of income. Lots of folks who have, I just talked with a gentleman last week who he just on the side, he does Uber and he can't do that right now. That is not in his wheelhouse. And so that's income that's lost to his household. Um, but his main job is just fine. And so when you think about how many more millions of people have been affected, it this is a long game. This really is something that we have to be real cautious about, sensitive, and then also, you know, use wisdom in everything that we're trying to do because um, I think I think we're going to start seeing more and more who all is affected. It's not just hospitality and the airlines and that kind of thing. It, it's going to be more industries that come out of this with, with a little bit of pain. We got to work on that too.
1: I'm talking with Erica Young from Made Budgets. Erica, any last advice? If you're out there struggling, not sure what's going on with your future, what can we tell these people who are hurting right now?
3: Yeah. So for those of you who are hurting, I think the main thing to think about is focus on your basic necessities right now. Protect your four walls, which I call your food shelter, utilities, and transportation. Make certain that those four are taken care of. And as long as your family is healthy and safe, that's the one main thing to be thankful for. So keep that in mind as we go through this challenging time.
1: Erica, thank you for being on. Where can people reach you if they want to contact you?
3: So Taylor May budgets is my website. Um, you can also jump on to a free seven-day money challenge, and that's 7daymoneychallenge.com, and it's a free video series, one a day for seven days, and it'll just make it easier for you to take some small steps on a daily basis just for a week.
1: These are definitely difficult times. None of us foresaw what was going to happen, not just with our economy, but with the health of our nation. In times, like these it's important to keep your eyes open and see the helpers out there and erica young is a helper so thank you for doing what you do and hopefully hopefully things will start looking up
3: yeah thanks doc thanks for having me
1: all right that was awesome
0: yeah it was i gotta fun.
1: I gotta
2: say, you asked some great questions. A lot of times, <laughs> a lot of times the podcasters I'm dealing with, like they just like send me your questions ahead in time, so I just get my my questions spit back to me. But it's nice to have some really good, well thought out questions. I appreciated that.
1: Yeah, my goal is always to have a cerebral uh, discussion that that pulls out the most salient things you guys have to say. I mean. This podcast is a celebration of its guests in our community. And so the people I have on are people who I am impressed by, I believe in, and it is a pleasure to be able to celebrate you. So when I go to prepare for these podcasts, my whole goal is how can I celebrate and bring out best of what you're about? And so that's why I try to go past the further, you know, tell me your name and and what do I need to know about you type thing. I'd much rather try to really kind of pull out your story if I can and do it in a fun, interesting way.
0: Thank
2: you. It's good. It's It's nice not knowing what was coming up.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I've had people at the end of this be like, you asked some hard questions. I wasn't ready for that, but you guys obviously were quite ready.
2: I wasn't ready for the real estate one. I needed to think about that one
1: for a minute or two. <laughs> well, see, MK, I, I knew from before. So I knew she was a pro. I knew I'd have no problem with her. So
0: <laughs> you're, you're too kind. <laughs> tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech,